Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 99. Jeff, did you ever think we would get here? No way. I mean, I was shocked when we when we hit uh, 15, to tell you the truth. Honestly? Yeah. You were ready to hang up your podcasting cleats at episode 14? I was, I was, I was just, I, I didn't think it would, it would make, no, actually, the truth is, yeah, of course we made it to 99. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You weren't ready to shuffle off into the locker room? I, and... was, I was thinking about it this morning, though. I thought, you know, wow, um, you know, almost 100 episodes. That's, right. That's, I felt really good about you that. You did? Yeah. Did it, did it make you excited? It did make me a little excited. Okay. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the next 100. I am too. Yeah. The next 100. Wow. Yeah. It's fantastic. Huh. From humble beginnings to what? I don't know. And well, Soup yeah. to nuts? Something like something that? Something like that. Okay. But you think about the, the hours that people could waste just having our voices on <laughs> in their headphones. Someone uh, said to me recently, I won't name that person. They know who they are. Yeah. And uh, it hurt. Uh-oh. Um, something along the lines of, I'm glad I won't have to listen to your voice at one and a half speed anymore. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch, man. Yeah. Man, I hope you're not friends with this person anymore. Not anymore. Okay, yeah, no. that, that's it. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Dave, what, um, uh, what do we got on? What's, what's on tap today? We're back to the Aeneid. Fantastic. In the words of Bruce Springsteen, we're about to go down, 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 something like it's that. It's one of my fa- favorite lyrics of his. We're, what yeah. is the name of that song? I think it's We're Going Down. We're Going Down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we are at the entrance to the underworld, and mm-hmm. we are about to descend. Yes, we are. Right? We're about to take the escalator from the food court. Yep. To the shoe store. Down to the, actually, to the DMV, isn't that what's oh, down no. there? No, no, it's worse than that. <laughs> That's the Homeric view of the underworld, remember? That's right. That's A right. pain in the Nequia, parts one and two. Exactly. From the Odyssey, book 11. Yep. The Roman underworld is quite different. Yes, I like the way you have described it already here in the script. You mm-hmm. described it as... A department store, right? Yeah, or a mall. A mall. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, where you can find everything you don't want. Exactly right, but it's very well built and very well organized, mm-hmm. as you would expect from a uh, a Roman uh, shopping area. That's correct. Yes. because you can hardly get those words out. <laughs> I'm with you, buddy. Boy, it's been one of those weeks, hasn't it? Ah, uh, me too, man. You can smell the approach of March. Oh man, here we're, in uh, September. Yeah, it's sunny out there today, but we're, we're getting a bit of that touch of that lousy March weather. Yeah, there, it's yeah. lurking, right? Yeah. Kind of like a locus of Right. The weather is daring you to uh, think it's pleasant because yeah. boom, it'll turn on you in a moment. Fall, it fall. I love fall, but it always kind of makes me a little bit nervous because right. you never know what you're going to wake up to. Yeah, you come around the corner and there's winter, right? Slap yeah. you in the face. That's right. That's right. Speaking about slapping people in the face. Yeah. We have a shout out, don't we? Yeah, we're going to slap this guy in the face? No, no. Oh. This guy is a mensch, let okay. me tell you. Oh, tell us about him. So this is my good friend Buster, and uh, that's not his real name. Mm. His real name is Harry R. McLeod Jr., and I met this fellow back in, oh, it must have been 2000, 2001, when mm-hmm. I lived in Virginia, the uh, the great state or commonwealth, I can't remember, of Virginia. Buster is a, a tall, fun-loving, uh, intelligent, goofy kind of guy that, you know, instant friendship was formed. Right Fantastic, there. yeah. Like, we used to play tennis. You say, you want to play tennis, Dave? Yeah, let's play tennis. We'd go out, he'd start serving, and he would start uh, chanting at me, no bagel, no bagel, no bagel, no bagel. <laughs> what? <laughs> He said, you know, a bagel, like a zero. It's like 15, a 15 love, 15 zero. Yeah. A zero is a bagel, right? Oh, Start okay. chanting at me, no bagel. No bagel. Yeah. Man. So a... we played some tennis. Yeah. I, you, you're a tennis player? Do you still play tennis? Uh, not very much or very well. Have you played it since Buster? Um, a couple times. Okay. okay. Yeah. I used to be somewhat fleet of foot. Mm. Um, what is the epithet for Achilles? Uh, podas ocus, fleet with respect to his feet. Yes. Right? So I could do that, but not so much anymore. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got to take up the table tennis, which I understand you fancy yourself uh, quite good at. I'm. I, I mean, I think my best days are again behind me. That's but, good but to I know. I used to be a fleet of the flick of the wrist. Interesting. Back in the day, I, I could. I, I. I still love it. Ping yeah. pong is all in the hips, you know. Really? Oh yeah, that's where you develop the power. Is that, really? Got to okay. pivot at the hips. Is that right? I can see this is going to be an easy win for me. No, listen, you're, you're just making me uncomfortable. <laughs> you're going to roll right over. Hey, let's talk more about Buster. All right, all right. Harry R. McLeod Jr. Buster. He says, Jeff, what does he say? He says, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to what has become one of my favorite podcasts. Well, let's stop him right there. I, exactly. What more needs to be one said? One of his favorite podcasts. Oh, I, I, I missed that. See, she, I can find the insult anywhere, whereas you just see a compliment. I do. But now I, I, we could uh, 
We could we could edit this become okay. become his favorite podcast. Let's of all take time. that out. Okay, right. Buster says I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to what has become my favorite podcast. Yes, he says I attempt to utilize the time I walk my four dogs. My gosh, yeah, it's like being pulled in a chariot. He's got one attached to each limb. I understand. <laughs> you know the quadriga that they used to ride the four yes. horser. Right, that's what I'm picturing. Um, by listening to various podcasts, uh, David reminded me recently of Ad Nauseum, and after the first episode, I was hooked. The episodes are engaging, educational, and entertaining. I've learned a great deal and enjoyed doing so. Residents of Raleigh, so he's a North Carolinian He's now? a North Carolinian, okay. yep. May have seen a 6'4 man walking his dogs while pondering, laughing, or asking Siri what a word means that Dr. Noe just said in an episode I'm listening to at the moment. Yeah, I think he's being a little modest there because I think he's taller than that. Really? He's, yeah, he's approaching more like 6'6". Six, six. Wow. It's a, a big guy. A tall being, drink of water. Being pulled by four dogs <laughs> while he's listening to classics. Yeah, that, that, I, I like that. Uh, almost, it reminds me of, um, it's almost a... Uh, a GK 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 Chesterton type image. Oh, really? Yes, kind of like a kind of a bizarre, kind of absurd image of walking down the street chasing his hat or something like right. that. Right. Yeah, I like that. Right. Yeah. I think of more of a who's the guy in the underworld we're going to come across him today. He's uh, his skin is stretched over nine acres. Oh. As a particular kind of punishment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, what I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, maybe it's Tafoyas. I can't remember. So that's how you're picturing Buster here. Well, maybe <laughs> being pulled in four directions by dogs. He's trying to listen to the podcast, but he goes on. Yes, please take it away, David. Oh, he says, I can only remind them, uh, meaning the listener, of what Caesar taught us. Milan, that is. A tired dog is a happy dog. Do you know Caesar Milan? I had to look him up. The dog the dog whisperer. He's the dog whisperer. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So you know this guy. I do. What uh, do you think? Well, I'm, I, my mother-in-law was kind of enamored of him for a while, okay. and so she would tell me about Caesar. I've never watched him, but mm-hmm. she, she was very impressed with uh, yeah. Yeah, his, his, uh, his advice on how to you know, train your pooch. How to train your pooch, yep. right. He says, so I leash up your pet. So, oh, sorry. So leash up your pet and hit play. I like that. Your dogs will be tired and happy because you won't want to stop listening to this podcast. Wow. And then he ends with these words, Jeff. Thank you both for all your great work, Buster. Yeah. Right. That's nice. That was very nice. I mean, most of his shout out was kind of about us. Which, it was. Which is, a, a, I mean, slightly, slightly embarrassing. Long overdue, yeah. you would say. <laughs> no, I mean, I want, I want to know more about Buster. He seems yeah. like a great guy. He is a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. The guy, I mean, he's a mensch, right? Mm-hmm. You sit down and have a beer with this guy, you won't stop laughing. Fantastic. Just a, a side-splitting, uh, fun-loving guy. And it's rare to meet people like that. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. I wish I were one of those people. <laughs> Although I wouldn't want to spend much time with myself no? if that were the case. No. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, too much enthusiasm and cheer. <laughs> uh, we have an opening quote, Jeff, don't yeah. we? Yeah, you want me to tackle that? Yeah, can you do that? Right, so this, um, if the uh, if the listener will remember, hopefully you listened to the lat, the previous uh, Neat episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we ended by talking about this business of the Golden Bow. Correct. And I was trying to make much of the fact that um, the bow resists. The, the Latin word there is cunctantem. Right? That's correct. It, 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 um, it's sticky. It, it, it resists. Yeah, it's hesitant. doesn't want to get pulled it out. It doesn't want to get pulled out. And, and then... Um, that comparing that to what the symbol says that you know, if you are if you are the man fate says you are it will come easily that's right the, we compared it to the lifting of thor's hammer yeah yeah right? yeah right right which how do you pronounce the name of that hammer i don't it's it, it's not is it mjolnir mjolnir something like that. that okay you know i've i have picked up uh thor's screwdriver <laughs> uh the level once i think i got it off the right. the garage floor that one's that one's named carl <laughs> <laughs> but picking up that hammer, right, you have to be worthy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like, you know, Arthur and, and drawing the sword. Right? Yeah, so you got to pull it out of the stone. Exactly, right? right. So that's it's it's one of those kind of folkloric, um, those uh, folkloric uh, kind of rites of passage. Right? Correct. Like if you can't do this, then you are not chosen. Well, it's just like another classical reference, would you like here? Please. Theseus, mm. right, is actually the son of Aegeus, the king right. of Athens. He has to lift up that great rock yes. under which are his sword and his sandals. Yes. That were hidden there. It's a test of his paternity. Yes. You lift up the rock, the feet of great strength. Mm-hmm. Now you are uh, legitimately the son of the king. Tokens of your identity. Right. It's Cinderella's slipper. Did right? you have any of those in your coming of age, in the Winkle coming of age? Um, you taught us about the nerdtastic uh, moped before. You told us about that. Yes. I mean, I had lots of, I had lots of moments that were character building. Okay. Right? I didn't... Nothing like if I pass this test... <laughs> Now I'm a man, right? I didn't sit astride the JCPenney Pinto moped and say, ah, now, you know, let me inherit my kingdom. No, there wasn't no, anything No, there was like more that. pain to come. Really? Right. That was my that was my ride I took. That was my catabasis. Okay. Right? Okay. So, I, how about you? I mean, did you have kind of, oh, yes, now I am, now I am a man. I've done this. Uh, maybe when I had to f- fill out my own tax form for the first time. <laughs> my, my first uh, 1040, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't pleasant, but... 
yeah, this is real now. I'm I'm you, adulting. You've crossed right? a threshold. Correct. There's no going back. Right. Isn't there someone who can do this for me or just accidentally throw it away? <laughs> right, right, no, right. It's no, it's on you. It's on you. Yeah. So there, there was things like that. Yeah. Um, my first A minus in a Greek class. Oh. Yeah, after a long string of B pluses, you know. <laughs> A minus. Okay, I've I've worked. Something something's about to happen. I thought so. you were going to say after a string of A. I thought there was some humble bragging going on the other side of the table here. Well, Would I think you... it was humble bragging. Yeah, okay. Because I actually got up to an A minus. Oh, okay. we've talked about this before. Yeah, but I don't remember. That's yeah, been, it's that... been a hundred episodes. Dan. I can't remember everything. <laughs> right. How I was, you know, just a, a B plus at everything and oh. not good at anything, mostly because of laziness. So when you got the A minus, you thought, okay. I can do I this. I can do this. It can exactly. turn it around. Right. So mm. that was a, a rite of passage kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I pulled at that A minus and it reluctantly gave way and broke off in my hand, you yeah. might say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I like that very much. Thanks. Way to, way to pull it back. Yes. So one of the things that makes, of course, this rite of passage so interesting is that it doesn't really quite seem to fit the pattern, uh-huh. right? He doesn't easily lift the rock. He doesn't easily draw the sword from the stone. It resists. Mm. So the question is, what does that mean, if anything? And so the opening quote here comes from an article called The Hesitation of the Golden Bough. Okay. And this is by a man named Franz Steiner Verlag. Is yeah, that right? Exactly right. He's I like a, that name. German. Right? Verlag. He's way past nettleship. Yeah. Wh- yes, exactly. So this comes from the journal Hermes from way back in 1968. Wow. Yeah, neither of us were alive Before then. your time and mine. Yes. Yep. And um, uh, Mr. Verlag writes, It is naturally inviting to connect the hesitation of the bow with some of the other elements in the Aeneid that indicate a divided attitude to the destiny of Rome and the cost of empire. So that's kind of when, I I think I said in that that previous episode, I remember. I thought I had this great idea that people had noticed before, but zillions of people have. Yeah, and well, in addition, though, when we get to the end of the epic, we have to talk about the various interpretations. Yeah. And it strikes me that this interpretation coming out in 1968, Mm -hmm. what's happening in 1968? You know, that's the fevered pitch of the Vietnam War. True. Right? And so... I don't think Verlag is an American necessarily, I'm not sure, but um, there's a lot of doubt about the value of empire and mm. order and warfare. So it seems to me, I'm getting ahead of us a little bit, that a lot of the interpretations of the Aeneid from this era have jettisoned the traditional interpretation, yeah. which is that Aeneas is full-on celebrating the Augustan regime. Mm. I'm sorry, did I say Aeneas? Virgil, Virgil is yeah, full-on yeah. celebrating the Augustan regime. And instead... These interpretations are questioning Virgil's uh, motives and alignment with Augustus's ideas. And yeah. He's secretly trying to subvert uh, the whole Pax Augusta uh. by saying, well, look at the casualties, you know, that, that line the landscape. Yeah. And I have to say, as I will later, I'm skeptical of that a little bit because the interpretations, they kind of fit the generation too closely. That's a really interesting idea that, you know, that, I mean, even Mr. Verlock never intended that. He's speaking through the lens of his own right. times, right? So, no, th- th- I'm, I'm very persuaded by that. I think I would say that, you know, I'm with you. Um, I think the interpretation of saying that Virgil is subverting mm-hmm. um, the Augustan project, I think it goes a little bit too far. Right. I think you, I think you'd, cer- I certainly see Virgil that's saying, yes, this great destiny, but also look at the great cost. Yes. So he's being honest about the cost of this, at, by, while at the same time, um, celebrating uh, right. the Augustan project. It can be two things. Yes, that's true. Right. As a counterpoint, some of the interpretations coming at the end of the 1940s, some of those interpretations that we will look at, uh, they're rosily patriotic, ah, right? Coming off the heels of World War II. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the forces of good have crushed the forces of evil yeah. after a long slog. Well, you know, that may be true of that generation, but again, one has to be very wary of anachronism, reading back into Virgil's motives something that's really appealing to our own time. Right. Like the feminist readings of the Aeneid. Sure. Right? Sure, sure, sure. Right. I, I just, I don't buy it. Right. Yeah, it, it kind of comes down to, um, it's something I, I've often wrestled with even in my own scholarship is, you know, what, am I, what am I trying to show? Am I trying to show what this epic is about uh, from the context of its times? Right. Uh, I think many scholars would say, well, that context, you can't recover it anyway. They would say it's impossible to do so right. perfectly, and therefore it's not worth trying. Not worth trying. But then um, there's been a lot of, I don't know if you've uh, you know, seen some of the academic scuttlebutt that's out there in the, in the media right now, but kind of the... Are the butts scuttling? Oh, they're, they're constantly scuttling. Okay. Yes. Um, but kind of the, the idea of presentism. Yes. You know, right? So you, you interpret, you interpret scholar, you interpret these sources um, through the lens of your own time, because that's the only lens that you have. And that you are, in fact, supposed to do that. Right. 
Yeah. So, but that comes with its its own, of course, major pitfalls, right? At that so, point, I would just throw up my hands and say, you know, let's let's do something else. Right. Turn, why, turn on Netflix. Why bother? So yeah. So my approach has always been is like you. I, I think I think the past is recoverable to a degree. Right. You admit kind of the, the biases that you that you that you have, um, and you do the best you can. Yes. Right. But that's very interesting. Let me continue with Verlag's a quote here. So he says, on this view, the bow would appear as another victim of the energetic advance of the conquering hero. Kuntantem, in seeming to endow the branch with a will, consciousness, and a quasi-animate life of its own. That's interesting. So the, the branch itself doesn't want to. Yeah. Yeah? I mean, you're not so sure about that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's clever. That, mm. Keep going. Now, yeah. You don't want me to interrupt. Yeah. Brings its fate even closer to that of the human victims. The bow's removal would then stand as the counterpart in the natural world to the violence done to the Saturnian peace of remote Italy by the invaders, the reliquiae danium, the rest of the Trojans, who carry with them the bitter experience of war, defeat, and exile. The hesitation of the bow, plucked at the hero's first entrance to the new land, perhaps foreshadows the sentiment which appears especially strongly in the catalog of the Italian heroes at the end of Book 7. Book, uh, yes, Book 7. The regret, regretful knowledge of what is lost when quiet centuries of calm and innocence are suddenly awakened to action and progress. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of the he's saying it's it's the it's the colonial problem, right? Correct. Yes, it's it's a little too clever by half. You as think the so? Saying goes well, it isn't the case that all over the Italian landscape, it was an idyllic world of peacefulness and quiet that um, Aeneas and his crew disrupts. Right. That's not it. It is that is the that is the noble savage the noble savage archetype, right? Yeah. Once again, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's possible to honor the natives and the indigenous persons, and not infantilize them, right? By saying they're fundamentally different than us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, um, even though from the perspective of Virgil, an upper class Roman, you know, tapped by Augustus to 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 write this, that that would be part of kind of his interpretive uh, arsenal seems very far fetched to me. It does to me too. Yeah. All right, but I do think that I, I do think there's something with the hesitation of the bow, and we, I think you know. Oh, so yeah. We'll, we'll hang on to that. We'll see if this if that idea kind of pops up as we get into the second half of the epic. Okay. All right. And so we're going to get right into it, then, aren't we? Let's do it. And what we're going to give the listener today, if they have endured with us this far, all the way up to episode <laughs> ninety nine, is that we're going to go into the dark interior of the underworld. Right. Go down that descent, that catabasis, the catabino, and check out the residents, the denizens, you might say, mm-hmm. of the underworld. Get a little bit of a, a survey of who's there and how they're spending their time. And uh, we're going to start by going down to the river, right? Take me to the river. Take me to the river. Exactly. Right. You know that uh, t- Talking Heads song? I don't. Okay. The Talking Heads is a musical group? Uh, uh, yes. Okay. All right. This is rock and or roll? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, it is. Um, but maybe the subject for another conversation. Okay. But, but they have a song called Take Me to yeah, the River? Take, yeah, it's a good song. Is it based on a kind of, um, what, a, a Negro spiritual, an African-American? It is kind of. It, it is kind of. The, it's a Take Me to the River, Wash Me in the Water. So it's kind mm. of a baptismal Definitely. Kind of idea. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Like the great scene in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. But in our case, the river is uh, the River Styx. Okay. Right. So um, so when we last left our hero, yes. he was standing there with sword drawn. He was yes. hearing dogs howling. Right. The earth was 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 uh, tremoring, mm. and he had to take these first steps to, into the into the deep dark. Yeah, right? like the Carol King song, right? Which which one I is it? I feel the earth move under my oh, feet. Oh, great song. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the Sybil is going with him. Sybil kind of she she stays there as his guide. Okay. Now right? I'm asking a question. The answer to which you know, but our audience may not. Mm-hmm. Will the Sybil remain? Aeneas's guide throughout his whole journey in the underworld. Um, I believe I believe no. no. No, she's substituted by Anchises. Right. So when he meets his father, ultimately, right. then she says, "My work here is done." Yeah, she passes mm-hmm. the baton, the prophetic baton. Mm-hmm. She's also the one. Apparently, she's carrying the bow. Mm-hmm. She kind of puts it in her kind of her European carryall, <laughs> zips it shut, and uh, and produces it at the proper moment, as we'll see. Right. Right. Great. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So this is a. Um, it's one of these. Uh, I can't and forgive me, listener, if, if I'm repeating myself from the previous Aeneid episode. But you're not going to say liminal, are you? No, here? I'm not. I'm not going to say it. Okay. Uh, right. I, I'm. I will. I'm sure at some point. All right. But not now. Um, this part of the Italian landscape by Kume and the, the volcano there. It reminds me a lot of um, the area of uh, in what's the, northwestern Greece, Ephyra. If Epirus? Oh, no, Dodona and Epirus, right? The it, region is Epirus. Epirus. But it reminds me of kind of the Necromantion yeah. area where there are... There right are, by Dodona, the, the big shrine. Yes, and where there are rivers, there is right. an Acheron, there is a Styx. N- yeah, Phlegathon. So 
this is one of these areas on the physical geographical landscape that the ancients indeed associated with the underworld. So yeah. it's where kind of, you know, story meets, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Correct. Yep. So um, there is a, an area there called Avernus, you know, with the birdless place where right. even the birds won't fly. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, this is a very specific geographical location there. Kume was a was a real place. There was a Sibyl. There That's was an right. oracle there. This isn't just the fiction from Virgil's No, there mind. were there. books. The Sibylline books right. were written down and uh, carried and stored in Rome and mm-hmm. destroyed at some point in the past. But this was a, a real business like Delphi. Yes, exactly right. So Aeneas uh, does what uh, he's done throughout the first uh, six books. He's religiously correct. You've got to please all the various Stygian powers. He makes a sacrifice to Hecate and many other the kind of minor deities that kind of rule their own kind of corners of this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, he draw, draws his sword and he gingerly enters into this landscape. Once, yeah. a, once again, the Department of Motor Vehicles yes. here in the state of Michigan or the Secretary of State's office. Yeah. When you go there, right, they have tried to streamline it. You can get in the queue using uh, your cell phone, using Twitter and so forth. But when you get there, my approach is always don't make anybody irritated. Pull the, you know, pull the number, mm-hmm. wait in line, right? Go up to the counter, behave yourself. This is not the time uh, to try to be witty or clever or to impress anybody. Right. Because they have absolute power. Right. right? They can send you to the back of the line. Exactly. And you can't go to some other Department of Motor Vehicles to get your, your car registered. This is it. Right. So I that for me is the metaphor. Right? Yes. Um, Aeneas is... Devotion to ritual, yeah, kind of a mindless, very bureaucratic. Let's just do this right. Right, is because there are no options. Exactly, it's like being going through customs or TSA. Right, right. Just follow the rules. That's right. Do, do the do your song and dance and get through. That's right. Because yeah. you don't have any choice. Right. So, Dave, you want to read us some Latin here? I would love to. Let's hear Thank it. you. So, this is uh, line two seventy three. Westebalan tipsum primis quin fauci busorki luctus et ultri case passuere cubilia curai. Palentes quabitant morbi tristisque senectus, et medeset malaswada fames acturpes agestas, ter ribeles we su formai letumque labosque. I love that internal rhyme there, letumque labosque. That's great. Tum con sanguineus leti soperet mala et, oops, I messed it up. Oh, flew too close to the sun. Tum con sanguineus leti soperet malamentis. Gaudia mortiferum quad worse in lumina bellum. Oh, limina bellum. There you go, Jeff. Yeah, we go. Fer rei quel menidum talamet discordia demens. And last, we perdeum cri nem witiis inexa cruentis. There's some horrifying images and personae there, right? <laughs> Incredible. Right. Well done. I mean, there's, there, I was lots of elisions there. There were a lot of elisions. Yeah. Which, as the listener may know, an elision is when uh, two Latin words in the line, they have a, a special combination of, of vowels and consonants, and so the words are collapsed together. Uh, and you have to say them with a little more rapidity right what what would be the uh, musical equivalent because um, that happens right where t- two notes kind of blend or exactly. they, they carry over a measure right that, i mean that's very common in uh, certainly pop music right? right if you need to cram something to fit the meter you um you allow, i can't i can't think of an example at the top of my head well there's a number of words that are contracted like ever becomes air never becomes nair right uh, ain't right mm-hmm uh, I have no problem with that, right? Am not. This is cumbersome. Let's get it down to one syllable. Right. Ain't or in it. In it. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a contraction. Right, right, right. Isn't it? Three right. syllables. I've, it. Al- I've also heard like um, if you, you want to contract, I'm going to, it's just I'm a. I'm a. Right? Yeah. Yeah, those, yeah. those are contractions to try to fit things in where right. there's not enough space. Right, exactly. And they can also kind of project a kind of style too. It's yes. Like, like a, uh, I'm a do that. Right. Okay. It's, it's you're, Are you're, you? you're, you're gonna yeah. Now you're hip with the kids, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so let me. Um, I'll give you uh, Stanley Lombardo's uh, okay. wonderful translation and a bit more. Too. All right. So, so just before the entrance, in the very jaws of Orcus, grief and avenging cares have set their beds. Pale diseases dwell there. Sad old age, fear, hunger, the tempter, and foul poverty. All fearful shapes and death and toil and death's, death's brother sleep. Guilty joys and on the threshold opposite lethal war. The furies in iron cells and mad strife have her snaky hair entwined with bloody bands. In the middle, a huge elm stands, spreading its aged branches, the abode of false dreams that cling to the bottom of every leaf. At the doors are stabled the monstrous shapes of centaurs and biform scyllas, and Briarius with a hundred heads, and the Lernaean hydra hissing horribly, and the chimera armed with flame, gorgons, harpies, and the hybrid shade of Geryon. I'm getting dizzy here. This is like the ultimate haunted house, It's right? terrible. Suddenly panicked, Aeneas drew his sword and turned its edge against their advance. And if his guide, that's our Sybil, 
had not observed that they were hollow, bodiless forms, flitting images, he would have charged and slashed vainly through the empty shadows. Mm. So he's Aeneas is freaked out uh, by these uh, what he takes to be kind of real monsters. Right. And the Sybil tells him they're just phantoms. Right. Right. Now, I, uh, I don't maybe this is too much of a tangent, but I was okay. I was just in my myth class this morning talking mm-hmm. about we were talking about Odyssey Book Eleven. Yeah. Right? That's the catabasis there. That's right. Where Odysseus has his own experience in the underworld, and a student asked me. He says, "To what degree would an ancient Greek have said? Oh yes, this is what I believe." Right. It, it, to what in degree, other words, they're looking for, did they really think in religious or philosophical yes. terms that these things were true? Right. So I had said to the, to the, the class early on, we were, when I was introducing Homer, I was saying, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey in many ways comes as close to we get to kind of sacred text for the ancient Greeks, which I think is true. Um, and so the, the student was kind of piggybacking on that and saying, okay, if that's true, how much can we take this, I, these ideas in Book 11 as kind of a template for what an actual, you know, Joe and Jane Athenian would have believed? Right. And I, or Roman. Oh, or, I mean, you're talking about Homer. Though. Right. So it's some, similar kind of thing. Like, to, How much is this poetic con- conceit? Is this kind of over the top? The, 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 he's entertaining his audience. And to what degree would a, a passage like this reflect kind of a, rear, a real horror about what's waiting on the other side of the veil? In my estimation, Jeff, that student asks an excellent question. Okay. And uh, the answer to which we will probably never have in any definitive form. That's more or less what I told him. Yeah. yeah. But here's a little bit of general guidance, you might say, things I've learned. Um, take, take them with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two really helpful books that I've read on this topic. One on Roman religion by a woman named Valerie M. Warrior, mm-hmm. uh, which gives a broad... It's a great name. That is a great Valerie name. Valerie Warrior. Wow. <laughs> Man. Gives a broad survey of the concept of uh, religion among the Romans, getting into both the public aspects and the private, which for a Roman, again, practically indistinguishable. Yeah. Right? You believe what the state believes. Uh, and then secondly, um, André-Jean Festugier, some French guy, it's mm-hmm. the best I can do. Uh, we've quoted this one on the air before, uh, and the volume is uh, Personal Religion Among the Greeks. Mm. I think in terms of answering the student's question, that, that second one is better. Uh, because yeah. it tries to tease out, okay, these were the public things that the Greeks believed, and then here's what we know about private piety. Yeah. So my conviction is, no matter how different the theistic and doctrinal beliefs are, um, you're going to find very similar practice. So uh, I am a Christian, you are too. So our practice today is uh, based on a different set of beliefs, right, and aimed at a different God than that of the Greeks and Romans. Right. And so hopefully that will be reflected in, you know, practices of piety. But on the whole, uh, what separates, you know, theists today from ancient theists is not so much practice in every instance as in the object of what you believe in. Yeah. yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. Yeah, I would add to that. And one thing I offered to the student as well is that um, I think that in terms of like the, the, the details, like, you know, could you go to a place and make a sacrifice and expect ghosts to come towards you. Right. But I would say, I think that what I do see in, in, in like uh, the, the underground, the, the undergirding, say, philosophy or theology of like Hesiod, right. there's a bleakness at the root of oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right? There's no hope. There's no hope. And it's so very I, different. And so I, I would say, like, if you could look at maybe like the Greek development of like the mystery religions right. as a pushing back against right. that. So I said maybe they wouldn't, you know, share, you know, uh, a belief in all the details, but that the idea that there's kind of, at best a kind of bleak unknown right. that the state religion couldn't really address or didn't. Right. And maybe we could see that kind of pushback in, in things like the private mystery cults as a way of that, okay, the Greeks kind of they're re- responding to something that, uh, that was a shared belief. Yeah. 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 Right. And, yeah. If I, and if I could say something here a little bit more dogmatic. Please. As is my want. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I find that a lot, of, a lot of Christians I interact with believe that they themselves are fundamentally different than their uh, pagan predecessors. Mm. And I don't think this is especially true, right? So how am I different uh, as a Christian from, you know, the, the Roman worshipers of the past? Well, my prayers are pretty similar. They tend to be pretty similar. They tend to be not animated by high ideals, you know, of my belief in a perfect God. They tend to be pretty um, selfish a lot of the time. You yeah. Know? So what did the Romans pray for? I don't want to get sick. You know, save me from financial ruin make sure my kid gets into this or that college, right? Right. So so our prayers, you know, though we believe in a different God, they're really, really similar. Yes. And the, the reason that I, th- I think it's worth making this point is the difference between a true and false religion has less to do with the individuals practicing it than with, you know, the individual who constitutes that religion. Right. 
You see what I'm saying? Sure, absolutely. It's, it's, it's easy to be very proud, especially as post-enlightenment people. Right. Right. Those Romans were all superstitious pagans. Are you sure you're not quite superstitious? Exactly right. That's always worth examining. Sure. And I think that you know, for, for many Christians, and even in my own thinking, I find myself kind of fall into this trap of, of um, you know, I, not you know, not really accepting the idea. Oh, I'm saved. I'm saved by grace. There's nothing that I can do to kind of you know affect my own salvation. Right. But you fall into kind of the divine Santa Claus trap, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a checklist. Of right? course, I, I need to keep the Pax Deorum right. through, through through my actions today. Yeah, I think there's something very human of kind of falling into that. Absolutely, like I'm, I have to earn my own way to, to this. Right? right, and so in that way, that's not that's not different from no. the, the ancient approach at all. Yeah, because human beings will be human beings. Yes, uh, throughout history, and that, yeah. that, that's my conviction at least. Right. Yeah. 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 That's that's good stuff. All right. Yep. All right. So, um, did th- did you want to talk about this huge elm tree? What is what's going on there? I, I, com- I, I, I read this this morning. I completely forgot about that. But it's apparently it's the it's where false dreams are kept. Yes, in yeah. the middle. This is Lombardo. You already read it, but mm-hmm. we'll repeat it. A huge elm stands, spreading its aged branches, the abode of false dreams that cling to the bottom of every leaf. Mm. That is so evocative, right? Isn't it? Yeah, it is it's really incredible. Evocative. And there's a bit of foreshadowing. We won't get to it today, but. When um, Aeneas leaves the uh, leaves the underworld, mm-hmm. he exits by a particular gate. That's right. There's what, the gate of horn and the uh, gate of ivory. Right. And he leaves by the gate of the false of the false dream. Right. And so maybe there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. But mm-hmm. I was thought I was thinking to you know what does uh, as a, I you know, on uh, driving over here what does the what might the elm symbolize you know, we have the oak with Jupiter I mean is there is there a resonance there that you mm, recognize I, I don't know I think the elm uh, not not really I'd just be speculating but yeah I think the elm is a tree known for its uh, age its beauty and its size so it fits so, so not different than the oak I right. suppose but not associated with a particular deity right so there's not a layer there no okay. but, but clinging to the underside of a leaf are false dreams yeah these false dreams I can just picture it. They come off the leaves, what, and they they flit down into people's minds while they sleep. Yeah, right, and entice or deceive them mm-hmm. with all kinds of crazy things. Uh, yes, disturbing things. Right. When you wake up from a dream, right, there's a moment where you say, "You're totally convinced." At least this is my experience by the rationality of the world you were in. Mm-hmm. But then, within a few moments, you've either forgotten it entirely or thought, "That is crazy." Yes, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. How could I moments ago have thought this makes perfect sense? Right. Because now it's ridiculous. Exactly. And here's where I'm going to bring up liminality. All right. right. So I was again, I was just talking about this in my class. Is that um, the, it, we've all experienced that, like what you were talking about, that kind of that moment where you're kind of coming out of the dream state, but you're not quite awake. You're kind of in that weird in between world where you mm-hmm. don't really know where you are, right. and you're kind of you're like you said, you're, you're clinging to the narrative that you're just living through. Right. Right. right? So. Um, and then you wake up and you either forget it or you say, "Wow, that that was nuts." Right, and right. this is uh, this is Virgil's sorry Aeneas's entire experience in Book Six. Yeah, uh, very much like Queen's Reich, Jeff Tate, right? Silent Lucidity. Yes, the only song that I I know by Queen's Reich. Yes, right, that, that most people know by Queen's Reich. Right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this this um, what I found interesting you know, to compare this this underworld with Homer's underworld. Um, there's Homer seems or sorry Virgil seems to suggest there's a lot more slippage mm. between uh, this that world and our world. By slippage you mean can pass between can them pass more between. easily? Exactly right. So this, that, that one of those first images of this of these uh, heavy, these these leaves heavy with false dreams, um, ready to kind of fall off and kind of and make their way to our world, is that uh, Vir- the Virgilian underworld seems to suggest there's a lot more connection between the next world and ours than I think the Homeric world, which leaves a lot of that just mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Tradition has developed, right? Mm-hmm. Again, the time has passed between uh, Homer, say, 750, 780 BC. Yeah. Virgil now seven, eight hundred years later. A lot of poets in between. Yeah. Specifically, the Greek tragedians and uh, Apollonius. Right. So right. there's been development. But don't you think there's also the 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 differences between, say, the Homeric and Virgilian underworlds? Um, also reflect a, a deep cultural difference. Yes. Like the Romans as the, the great engineers, the builders, the organizers. Right. It a makes desire sense. to regularize and systematize right. things. Right. So it makes sense that their underworld would be a shopping mall. That's right. Whereas the Greeks, perhaps, culture speaking, much more comfortable with paradox and mystery, right? right? Um, I think there's a, there's a general um, uh, kind of cultural divide there. Yes. And speaking of cultural divides, yeah? it's time for the ads. Let's do it.
This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the great folks at Ratio Coffee, and uh, Mark Helwig in particular. That's correct. He's the genius behind this, right? Yeah, the entrepreneur. Right. So do you know, does, did Mark Kennedy handcraft and design all that stuff? Or he does, did. Or does he have a crack team? Well, he has a crack team, but he had to do all of the initial grunt work. Man. The guy is not an engineer. Yeah. He is also um, not an artist. This is not to say he doesn't have a lot of those skills, but... He had a basic liberal arts training. Mm-hmm. So this is not a commercial for what you can do with the liberal arts. Maybe it's a commercial for what you can do when you put your mind to it. Right. Uh, but Mark just said the um, the coffee machine, the home coffee machine, has not really advanced in our lifetimes. Yeah. I'm going to do something about that. He sat down and did the hard work, and yeah, he had support, but he's come up with really a work of art. He has, and knowing that that background makes it even more impressive yes. what he's been able to do. Lots of trial and error, studying the designs of others. You know, it's a, how many attempts did it get Edison to make the light bulb? Right, or the Wright um, Brothers to get off the ground? Right, I think yeah. 600 different filaments he tried. Yeah. Uh, Mark, you know, he's done a lot better. <laughs> That's fantastic. I just so, compared him to Edison. And I compared him to Orville and Wilbur. That's fantastic, yeah. And I do so proudly. So yeah, so this morning, I mean, my ratio, my ratio eight, uh, it's a beautiful work of art that sits there on my on my countertop, it, and it, pr- it produces the, the perfect cup of coffee for me every single morning. I go from the bloom to the brew to the ready. I pour a cup of coffee. I bring it up to my wife. Um, she's, she's always happy to get a cup from that machine. Would you say uh, that the best part of her waking up is uh, ratio in her cup? Oh, we can't steal that. Isn't okay. that some other, isn't that like, like Fluger's coffee? I don't like know. Yeah. Did she give you a dark, sparkling look? <laughs> It was great, and my cup was great too. Uh, Dave, what about you? Yeah, did you use your ratio machine this morning? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, I did for sure. I ground up the beans. I got a nice strong grind. Yeah. And uh, no more mass produced coffee for me. No. No, it went up through the metallic veins. Yes. Uh, where are we headed here? We're headed to the brackish tang. And wait for it, listener. Wait for it. Yes. And uh, the, the water came down at about 200 degrees Fahrenheit into the cone. Through the Fibonacci head? Through the Fibonacci shower head. Yes. Right. And uh, then, boom, what did we have? You had the perfect cup of coffee. No, we had the bloom stage. Oh, the bloom stage. That's right. That's right. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I'm getting, good, I'm getting too excited about it. Good this. grief. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, listener, if you want to No, we're not done. We're not? What, what's going no. on? No. Oh. And then the water went down into yeah. the hulking flagon, right? The kind of thing that you could store plutonium in. Of course. And uh, after the off-gassing. Yeah. And um, what was it that was off-gassed? It was the, the, the nasty CO2, which you don't want anywhere near your coffee. No, you don't. That's no. what makes it harsh and bitter. That's where the, t- the tang of brackishness comes That's in. That's right. right. This was sweet and mellow. Uh, like a glass of wine. Yeah, every single time. Okay, now we can go to the so good stuff. So, listeners, um, do yourself a favor. Go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O. Uh, type in the coupon code uh, A-N-C-O-V-4. That's correct. So, that's ad nauseum, A-N-C-O, coffee, and Victor 4. Victor 4, and that will get you 15% off either the ratio 6 or the ratio 8, or both if yep. you want to get them. And you might say, ah, Jeff, Dave, this is not an inexpensive coffee machine. Well, you're right, mm-hmm. but... A lot of you brew coffee every day, serve it to your guests and friends. This thing is an investment. It is. It does not uh, It does not wear. It does not tear. It lasts a long time. Long time. So, yeah, it's worth it. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you, dear gentle listener, by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. H-A-C-K-E-T-T. Jeff, where are Hackett's offices? They currently have offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and also Cambridge, Massachusetts. And how long, Jeff, have they... So this is a quiz, pop yeah. quiz. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. long have they been purveying high-quality, inexpensive literature to the public? I believe that this is their 50th anniversary year. This would be their golden bow, you might say. Yes, exactly. Their golden anniversary. Yep. And what do you like about Hackett? And you can't answer. Okay, you ready? Yeah. It's part of the test. You may not mention the attractive covers in your answer. Oh, I can, but it's one, no, of, things I, it's one of the things I love the most, though. Yeah, I don't go all, all liminal right. on us. Okay. The cover is liminal. It's when you get on the inside, you get the right. juicy pulp of the book. Right. Well, let me tell you this. So okay. I had a student come to me and said they were having a little trouble getting the particular textbooks for, for a, a class of theirs. Hmm. And I said, what's the trouble? He said, well, it's not so much the trouble, it's how much they cost. And he showed me this paperback uh, textbook, which was going to cost this young person $185. You've got to be kidding And me. it was just criminal. Right. $185? Yes. That's the cost of one credit at the institution. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. So um, that's exactly the problem 
you're not going to find it hacking. Okay. So I, I would say if I can't talk about the attractive covers, you can't. It's um. You can't uh, mention the cover of the Bacchae with oh, Elvis on it. It's my favorite. You can't mention the Moonshot, which is uh, what's the Odyssey. The Odyssey, another good you one. You can't mention the Normandy Landing, which is the Iliad. That's right. I can't mention any of these. What's on the cover of the um the Aeneid? Um, it's the uh, it's it's the Vietnam Memorial. Oh yeah, you in, can't mention that either. DC. Yes, exactly. It's right. all a big lightotes. <laughs> yes. So I, having not mentioned any of that, that's stuff, right. Um, high quality translations and very affordable. Right. Right. And uh, uh, would you say a narrow range of no, titles on a offer? wide range? You're going to find. I think you're going to find stuff that you you can't even find on that um, that watery website. The that's correct. Bromazan or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Careful. Sorry. Careful. Um, yeah, so they have a huge selection. It's not just the classics. They have a great collection of classics. They yes. Have, they have uh, multiple translators for the same book. Mm-hmm. Um, World philosophy. They've got Latin American studies. They have uh, Asian studies. Asian studies, Islamic studies. Incredible span. Yep. So um, the listeners should, again, do themselves a favor. Go to hackettpublishing.com. You find the books that you want. Take some time to look around. They have a, a, a huge selection. And if you type in the coupon code AN2022, mm-hmm. what does that get them, Dave? They're going to get, what's a 2% off no, and no, no. three times the it, cost of shipping? 20% off. 20% off. And free shipping. Free shipping. There you it can't is. beat that. You cannot. You get two things out of that. You get some great quality literature inexpensively, and you also get the opportunity to support this podcast, That's right. which we really appreciate. We do. So we can keep purveying to you these interesting tales of classical lit and the world. Yes, hackitpublishing.com. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it, we're yeah. still descending the escalator down to the main floor we of are. the sprawling mall, yep. right? And what are we going to see here in the underworld? Well, he, and so in the passage that we were just referring to before the break, and he sees all kinds of different, you know, kind of famous monsters. It's a who's who of kind of the gruesome gallery. Right. Uh, Centaur, Scylla, the Hydra, Garion, the Gorgons are all there. A hybrid Garion. This is the triple-bodied monster. Yeah, most famous for uh, one of Heracles' uh, labors. Correct. Uh, Heracles stole his cattle yep. in uh, Spain and then killed him. He did. He's and got, his dog. He's got three bodies, right? Yep. And his dog only has two bodies, uh, Orthrus. Orthrus, right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, he had uh, gunned them down and then had to... The, Drive the cattle all the way across Europe back to uh, back to Greece. Yeah, right. Big big task. Yep. So we see him down there. Uh, so yeah, the harpies. It's kind of the uh, ultimate kind of creepy haunted house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we, as we just learned, they were they're phantoms. Right. Uh, um, and the Sybil helps Aeneas realize that. But then he gets to uh, he gets to the river. Okay. Right. And who takes you across the river? I think as as I, I finally in my, with my myth students, it's one of these things that a lot of people know. If they, even if they can't name him, they say, "Oh yeah, you have to get in the boat." That's correct. And get across. Take me tonight to the river and wash my illusions away. Something like that. Yes. Well, <laughs> did you get the reference? I, I'm. It's like half. That's a, the song Sti- by Sticks by the band Sticks. Which which song? Show me the way. Oh, show me the way. Yeah. I'm sure you hate it, right? It's, it's awful. So much schmaltz. It's awful. There's some stick songs I like, but that is okay. so sh- that is so cheeseball, right? <laughs> Um, but yes, uh, by the aptly named band, right? Uh, Sticks. So uh, so Karin is his name, and um, here too, I, th- I think this is interesting. What kind of happens to the figure of Karin? Um, if you kind of go from the Greeks to the Romans. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the way that Karin is represented in art, and so, uh, as you know, the, the um, vases were often used to kind of mark graves. Right. right? Um, and so a lots, funerary vase. Yeah, funerary right? vase. That was there to honor the dead. Right. And so you often have you know, images of Hermes, who's your soul guide. He's the psychopompos. Yep. And then Karin as well. And if you look at the depictions of Karin, more often than not, he's... Kind of a guy with kind of a ratty cloak, and he's got a cap that you know, marks him as a slave, and he's, right. just, he's just kind of a, a a schlubby guy that has kind of a, a a nasty job to do. Okay, but when when we hear about him, in, say say maybe like, uh oh, be careful. Uh oh, <laughs> I don't know. So, never mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of someone who's got a nasty job to do. I was thinking of the guy that holds the sign along the highway. Oh yeah, as you you know for the road repair, the 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 person just stands there holding the sign. Oh yeah, know, stop, go. I, I'm not sure it's possible to look any less interested in your work. That is an awful job. But the reason I didn't want to say it is because hopefully we have some listeners like that and you called them schlubby, so oh, I, I didn't want to do that. Exactly. I think I think by no, I think by extension, you're the one who called them schlubby. Right? <laughs> I was talking about Count Karn himself. But 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 in, in myth class day we were talking about like, like Sisyphus. You yeah. Know? So so many punishments in the underworld are they're not so much kind of raw physical torture. They're no, just, they're it, futility. It, endless drudgery. Correct. Right? And um and my students were kind of sharing 
their experience of, you know, haven't we all had jobs like that? Oh, yeah. You know, working in a factory and just assembling the same part right. you know, all day. Right. Or the guy turning the sign, like you were saying. Karin right. kind of has a job like that back and forth. He takes the same route every day. Or maybe it's when you're grading papers in a class and every student misspells the word Iliad. Oh, exactly. Do the double L. Three, two or three L's. Exactly right. The Iliad. Yeah. So yeah. what I've taken to do is writing, I've taken to putting little frowny faces next, oh, yeah. next to student errors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've taken to doing that because um, I want them to see I have an emotional re an emotional reaction. Yeah, to their error. You're it, grading with emojis. Yes, it makes exactly yeah. it makes me frown. So <laughs> exactly, it's being, oh, I just a little piece of me died. Yeah, right. It's it's got to be personal, right? Per the age we live in, everything is personal. So it's yeah. not just an error. Look what you did to your teacher. You made him frown. Exactly. Maybe that'll motivate them. Maybe to take some of the L's out of Iliad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, break that down. Just the one L, please. <laughs> So what I was trying to come around to is if you compare that kind of that, you know, everyday, you know, workman, blue collar kind right. of depiction of Karn with the way that Virgil describes him, we've already moved to kind of a more kind of a glowing eyed, skeletal, demon-like figure. Mm, moving so, toward the representation, say, in um, Dante. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. And easily the most famous depiction, right, would right. be the one of Michelangelo oh, yes. from the Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel, right. Right. If you haven't seen that, uh, listener, you should really do yourself a favor and Google that. It is one of the most interesting, disturbing things you'll ever see. It is. It's 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 quite wonderfully awful. Yes. Right. It's something that is meant to be partly terrifying, but I you just can't take your eyes off it. Yeah. It's gripping. It is very much so. And what's happening with Dante and Michelangelo? I think you're also seeing kind of these these ancient traditions becoming Christianized. Correct. Right. And so, especially if you compare like the the Greek Karin uh, to Michelangelo's Karin. Kind of that full kind of you know literal demonization right. of the character has taken place. Would you like me to make another mildly dogmatic point here? Of course, I'm, I okay. always love it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so some people say, well, you know, the Christian tradition about hell in the underworld, that's all bo borrowed from the pagan world. Mm. But they're only half right, right? So the Christian scriptures are filled with language and discussion of the next life yeah. and its blessings and punishments, right? But the aesthetics of it is pretty pretty thin, right? Yes. There are things like the place where the worm does not die, you know, the place where fire consumes, but they're very brief kinds of comments. Right. So it is not the case that the Christian tradition has borrowed all those ideas from the pagan world. Yeah. But I think more accurate is they have illustrated those ideas with images and such, like yes. you were just saying. Exactly. Borrowed from the pagan world. Exactly so right. That's, a, that's an important distinction. Right. So even in... Um, like uh, the Disney Hercules, have you have you seen it? Yes, you know parts of about? it. I've read about forty student papers about it, yeah, so I th I I'd say that's close. Right. Yes, I, t I tell them when, uh, that they're not they're not allowed to kind of to use that as a as a uh, as part of their thesis. Anymore, no, right? I'm going to run out of emojis. Right. <laughs> that's right. But if you remember that um, the Hades figure, uh -huh. voiced by James Woods, I believe, yeah. is he's got the fire kind of from his fingertips. Right. It's very it's a very much kind of a demonized right. version of Hades. Yeah, a Dante right? a Dante esque version of Hades. Right. Where if you look at um, what we can kind of recover of how the Greeks kind of worshipped and envisioned Hades, right. That's that aspect is not really there. No, no, um, he's violent. And selfish, but there isn't some notion of giving out punishment. Exactly. exactly. In, in fact, most of the portrayals show uh, Persephone, Proserpina. Yeah. Proserpina. Uh, she's she's foregrounded. Correct. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So there, he's just a guy with kind of with lousy real estate, right? Mm -hmm. He drew the short straw. Right. So we expect him to be grumpy. Right. When but, he and the other two brothers uh, divided up the, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, but, jurisdictions of the world. Yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't turn him into kind of a satanic figure. No. Right. So. I always find those kind of those borrowings and those those changing those tweaks over over time very very interesting. Um, and anyway, we were speaking of um, um, you know biases that you kind of bring to that. Mm -hmm. I think there is kind of that westernized kind of uh, almost uh, almost extra biblical Christian lens that we naturally put to this. Oh, he's the god of the dead. Well, he must be some kind of demon figure, right? Right. And so that's always good to kind of push back and kind of say, well, okay, what was it? Draw some distinctions. Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah, I think someone says uh, he who distinguishes well teaches well. Yes. I like that. Okay. So uh, they, we see the, the souls kind of flocking down to the shore mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's struggling. They want to be first in line. They all want to get into the boat and, and Karin's kind of beating them back. He, mm. he only takes, and, and he is recognized, he only takes a few. You know, is, is there a height requirement? Is, <laughs> is it like, you know, the... Uh... If you, know, you want to get on point or something, you yeah. want to get on the boat. You must be at least this corrupt. Oh, oh man, that's there's a nice parody way to be made. Like, <laughs> yeah, what would the little what would the little sign be? If I, you, know, yeah. you, you have to you have to be taller than than Karen, Karen's pole. Yeah, you have to have boat. committed this many sins to get on the boat. 
<laughs> so uh, as Aeneas doesn't quite know what's going on, and so the Sybil explains. And so she says, no, listen, you have to have the proper burial rites if you want to get on, on the boat. And um, that's the only ones that, that Karin can take. Mm. So I think that we see that in the Greek tradition as well, is that while the underworld is bleak, you know, Achilles says to Odysseus, listen, you have no idea what you're talking about. Right. I'd rather be the lowliest slave than the king over the dead. That's right. Um, but there is a sense, it's, it, as bad as that is, it's infinitely worse to be stuck between, mm. right? If you don't have the burial rites, that's even, that's even worse of a punishment than, than kind of sitting in the DMV. Yeah, or the, or the DMZ, right? It's the demilitarized. There you go. Between the two... Uh, realms, yes, the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, right, right, trapped. Right. So it reminds us of Elpinor from the Odyssey, and of course we just had that scene um, mm-hmm. where uh, is it Marcellus? I believe that they have to, they have to, he's his body is found on the beach, and they have to, they have to bury it. It doesn't uh, sound right. I'm, I'm maybe I'm getting the name wrong, but at the, the beginning of book it's six, Macenus, Macenus. Sorry, sorry, it took me a second. I couldn't remember either. Yeah. And who, who does the show prep here anyway? Yeah, goodness gracious, yeah. With that. <laughs> Let's fire that guy. Right, I'm on the verge of apologizing, but not quite. Right. <laughs> so the civil says that those have to, they have to wander uh, unburied for 100 years before yeah. they can take the, take the next steps. And then he sees he sees all of these people from his past. Mm. And so here, again, the, the Homeric tag, just like uh, Odysseus encounters a number of people from, from his past, he, he sees a lot of, of his friends that were you know, lost at sea mm-hmm. and who are, you know, whose bodies are floating or, you know, at the, at the seafloor unburied. Mm-hmm. And he weeps for them. All my life in books written pages, live and learn from fools and from sages. Um, dream on. Dream on. Exactly. Right. Isn't that reminiscent of this? It is. I like that. Okay. You know, that's another, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm vying for the, the yeah, title of Johnny, Johnny Pop, Pop here. That's pretty good, right? So nice. you know, I, I, when that song comes on the radio, I always I'm, turn it off. No, it, but not because I think it's a terrible song. It's because Joe Perry's guitar is out of tune. And I can't do it. Ah, oh, you can't listen yeah, to off-key music. They should have. They should have re-recorded that. You've been yeah. listening to my off-key rantings for ninety-nine episodes. Yeah, and I've now. been meaning to talk to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, one of the figures that he sees there is the ghost of Palinurus, yeah. which the audience will remember mm-hmm. is the sh- uh, ship pilot who fell off, got thrown into the drink right. as a as a sacrifice to Neptune. Exactly, and. Um, Aeneas addresses him. How about a little more Latin here? Absolutely. Okay. This is line 341. This is where it starts. Sic prior ad loquitur quis te palinura de ordrum, eirdrepuit no bis medioque sub aequora mercit, dic acanamque mehi falax haudanta repertus, hoc unord respons anemum de lucid Apollo, qui for te pontin columem finisque canebat, ventur drausonios en haec promissa fides est? Very nicely done. It's beautiful, it isn't is. it? Thank I, you for the compliment. But honestly, uh, the very nicely done belongs to Virgil. This is so beautiful. Yeah. I, I just have to effuse a little bit about the beauty of this language. I love I love the two imperatives there, dik aga. Like, right. Come on, tell me. Get get to it. Get to it. Aga. Right. right. It, it's so desperate. That's what I want to say at the DMV, right? When they're <laughs> about to hand me my new license plate. Dik aga. Dik aga. Right. That's going to get you tossed, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, get to the point. So uh, this is Lombardo again, which translates, um, again, and this is Aeneas speaking. Palinurus, what god tore you from us and plunged you into the open sea? Apollo, never before found false, deluded me when he foretold that you would escape the sea and reach Ausonia. Okay, so apparently there was a, um, that doesn't seem to fit with the, with the prophecy. Right. And we know the rule of prophecies, they have to come true. Right. So Palinurus uh, speaks and explains. He says, Delphi did not mislead you, my captain, nor did any god drown me. The rudder I was holding to steer our course ripped apart. And as I fell headlong, I dragged it down with me. I swear by the wild sea, I was not so afraid for myself as for your ship. After that, it stripped of its gear and its pilot overboard, it might founder and sink in the heavy weather. Three stormy nights, the south wind drove me over boundless seas. So we, we learned that Penelope didn't just drown right away. No, he's, he's floating out there. That's awful. Like those many movies with sharks and swimmers and so forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, yeah, that makes my skin crawl. <laughs> As the fourth dawn broke, I rode the crest of a wave and sighted Italy. I fought my way toward land and thought I had safety in my grasp. I hooked my fingers on a crag of shore, but weighed down by my dripping clothes, I was easy prey for a band of marauders. Let's stop a minute. Yeah. Why would the gods do this to him? I don't know. This is awful. Exactly. They, they allow him after four days to float all the way to shore. He grips the land, and then what happens? And then he's kidnapped. He's a band of marauders. Yeah. Uh, beat him senseless. This is, uh, this is awful, yeah. Wind and surf now roll my body along the tide line. Um, so the marauders killed him. Right. Yeah. And by the sweet light in the air of heaven, by your father, by the promise Eulis holds, save me from these woes, Aeneas unconquered. Mm. Right. So he's begging, like Elpinor, right. uh, 
bury my body. Yes, and just to review, Elpinor fell off Circe's roof in the Odyssey mm-hmm. and lay dead and undiscovered in the bushes. Right, and nobody seemed to notice that he wasn't it's, on the ship. See, that's the difference. <laughs> that's the difference. That is a you big know, you difference. You get in the car with your family. Do we have everybody? <laughs> right. We got everybody. Right. right? Exactly right. Otherwise, Odysseus. Ha- I'm sorry. Yeah. No. No. Please. 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 Go ahead. Well, Odysseus has no concern for the other men. Right. And Aeneas is a very different character. He's a much more compassionate individual. Yes, right. I like the way that um, that that Aeneas is, is humanized in that kind of way, mm-hmm. right? So my students, um, more and more so when I teach the Odyssey, the more and more they say, you know, I, I like the story, but I hate this guy. Really? Yeah, they, they find him, Odysseus, so selfish and, and off-putting. And that, the business, I mean, it's not just Odysseus, but nobody of his men noticed Elpinor was gone. Right. So I think there's a there's a Home Alone parody to be, you do know that story? Yes, where, I do. Where Call him McCaucken? Macaulay, oh, Macaulay Cawkin. Yeah, whatever. where he's left behind. Right. right? So yeah, Elpinor is, you know, maybe an episode where he doesn't die. <laughs> you know, he, he's trapped in the he house. Sprain, he sprains his ankle. Has to wo- <laughs> uh, defend it against invaders. Right, something. something like that. Yeah. So, um uh, yeah, so he he's he's moved by this, you right. know, and um, he wants to know what you know what happened to Palinurus, what happened to all these guys, and true and compassion, true compassion, and he he feels really bad that he can't do anything to get them onto the boat, right? right? Yeah. So then the Sybil goes ahead, right, and she tells him that neighboring peoples will receive omens, mm-hmm. and they'll build a tomb, and they will appease his bones, Palinurus's bones, with the proper rites. Right. So I get they, they kind of um, they build like a cenotaph. Right. To him, and so if they—that's kind of this—that that will get him across. And yeah. So Sybil, cenotaph, yeah, you know, like a a false tomb, right? Right, okay. a place where you, a place of memorial when an empty tomb, an empty tomb. Do you want to have one of those? Um, no, I don't. Like want a an bait empty and tomb. switch. No, you know, people will come to Grand Rapids to see the tomb of Jeff Winkle, right? But you won't really be buried there. Yeah, you'll be in Memphis next to Elvis or something like oh, that. Oh, I would like that. I would actually like to be cremated and, and put into kind of a nice, you know, red figure vase. You want to be cremated? Well, what do I care? I want to okay. be dead. Okay, right. okay, right. So, um, so I guess this is not a happy ending, but at least Palinurus gets some good news, and he gets some good news that Palinurus would be taken care of. It's yes, hard. and his soul can then go settle somewhere, right? He right. can finally get his mail forwarded out of the DMZ. <laughs> that's right, that's right, right. So now they finally approach Karn, and Karn immediately recognizes something's not right here. Okay. He says, this guy is alive. No, I don't take live people. Meaning Aeneas. Aeneas, right, right. right. We don't serve your kind. We don't serve your kind. And even he talks about, the like, guy. I've been tricked before. And he says, you know, so you know, Hercules came down here to get Cerberus. Right. Um, Theseus and Prowithous came down here to you know, kind of drag off Persephone, kind of caveman style. And right. so he says, I took those chumps over and I'm not doing it again. That's right. So is this comic? Is there some humor here? I think there is some humor here. A little here. bit of light moment. Right. So again, Karin is kind of cranky old man. Right. He reminds us of, you know, he shows up in the frogs like we talked about. Oh, yeah. There, right. That's the episode of Coax Coax. That's the one. Right. And so um, there too, maybe even Virgil's tapping into uh, kind of his his knowledge of that play. Where, where, you know, Karin is kind of this he's kind of this cranky old man. He doesn't want to be duped once again. Because yep. it always comes down to Karin, right? He's always the guy that has to clean up other people's mess. Exactly, right. So he's got the staff, the pole, right? The pike for moving the boat. And on the other hand, what does he have? He's got a, a mop and a bucket, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cleaning up people's messes. Right. It's awful. Exactly, right. So he's a, he's a, he's a, um, a weathered and jaded taxi driver, yeah. you know, who's sick of picking up. Um, picking up the trunks. Exactly. Mm. Exactly right. And this is, but then the Sybil kind of produces the trump card and she whips out of her European carryall the golden bow. The golden bow. Right. So she says, in effect, to Karen, you don't like the particular task you've been given. What do you think of this? Yes. How how you like me now? Right. She whips that out and how does he respond? He's, he says, I mean, he shuts up Hmm. And he says, yep, never mind. He bows before the bow. He bows to the bow and he takes him across. In the stern of the ship or in the um, in, where are you going with this? <laughs> in the stern of the ship or in the the bow? The bow. He bows to the bow. Come in, on, in the bow. come right, on. Exactly right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then we see um, again. It's it's kind of like a um, it's a it's a who's who. It's right. like it's kind of a greatest hits. Like you know, you you, you get to fan the, service. Fan service. That's what it is. And as we're approaching the other side, he gets a glimpse of Cerberus, the famous three-headed dog. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, the depiction of this dog in Dante. Is phenomenal. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, well, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. the, the way that uh, Dante depicts Cerberus is just remarkable. So for a long time, I am a person who had not, I was a person who had not read Dante. Mm-hmm. A year ago, right about now, I had the opportunity to take a small teaching gig at a school in Florida, 
and uh, I was hired to teach uh, intellect, uh, medieval intellectual tradition, something mm. like that. Kind of out of my range, to be honest. Um, kind of like some of the things you're doing now, right, and doing well. Uh, like film and yeah. world religions, yeah, without a doubt. Right? right, but I, you know, I can read, I can study, I can take notes, I can learn. So I did those things, and I got to teach Dante. Nice. And I was just overwhelmed by even in translation. I think I used the Esselin translation uh, by the beauty of um, Dante's depiction of the underworld. Yeah. Right. I read the Inferno. Nice. And uh, appreciated it, of course, ten times more knowing Virgil as I do than without that knowledge. And of course, uh, Virgil is Dante's guide. Correct. Yes. So, but I'm thinking that we got to do an episode at some point, like make a comparison to the Virgilian oh, for sure. and Dante's. We yeah. might want to bring in some heavy hitters because, yeah. you know, I mean, people, they maybe, I don't know if we're flattering ourselves, they'd like our, our take on this stuff, but I'd really like to get in someone who, you know, speaks Italian, reads Italian. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there's only so much I'll, I'll dare to try. Do you know any Dante scholars? I do not. I know a couple. Okay. And yeah, not well, but I think they probably would like this. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. So they see Cerberus here. And let me just kind of share Lombardo's translation. Yes, let's hear that. This is a great uh, passage and a nice translation. So crouching in a cave on the farther shore, Cerberus made these regions resound, barking like thunder from all three of his throats. The seer, close enough now to see the snakes bristling on his necks, flung a honeyed cake laced with drugs into its rav- into his ravenous jaws. Cerberus snatched it from the air and then went slack, easing his huge limp bulk to the ground, stretching out all over his den, dead to the world. And he has entered the cave and left behind the water of no return. That's <laughs> so dramatic. I love that. I love that uh, the Sybil, is, she's come prepared. She also has in her bag a honeyed cake. That's she right. It's, and it's, it's stuffed with uh, it's, sleeping pills. It's like a milk bone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, here you go. Yep. yep. And that does it. That does so. it. Puts them right out. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Great stuff. And then there's a, a high moment of drama, right? Or a moment of high drama, I should say. And he has entered the cave and left behind the water of no return. Mm-hmm. The river uh, sticks. Yes, right? exactly right. So another another threshold cl- uh, cross. There's so many liminal moments here. You, mm-hmm. have the, uh, you have the beach, you have the forest, you have the cave, and now you have the, the, the river. Correct. And now he's going to go down, he's going to meet uh, all of the heroes yet to be born. Mm-hmm. Here, um, Virgil is going to employ some platonic psychology, which is really helpful. Okay. The only way to introduce the, the vast sweep of Roman history, which has not yet occurred. Yes. Right, because we're back in the 10th century, maybe right. the 11th century, right after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to introduce all of Roman history, which has not occurred, is to have Aeneas meet the souls of those yet to be born. Right. So he's going to meet the soul of Cicero, and he's going to meet the soul of Camillus, and the soul of Julius Caesar, and all these souls that are about to be sent down through their pneumatic tubes, mm-hmm. like when you're in line at the bank in the old days. Yes. Right? And uh, down into their bodies uh, with the dum-dum right beside it. That's right. So, exactly right. I always love that dum-dum. I did too. Yeah, I still grab one. <laughs> yeah. You go through the bank these days? Some, very rarely. But if, if there is a, a transaction that if I need to go talk to a teller. Like that, someone gives you a bar of gold or something, you can't just you know use your phone to take a picture of it and get it deposited? Exactly right. So, I mean, it's rare when I have to go to the bank, but when I do, I'm grabbing a dum-dum. You're grabbing a that's, dum-dum. That's all I'm really trying to say. I like yeah. a candy that insults you even as it <laughs> pleases you. Right? <laughs> right, right. You like the taste of this? Right, exactly. Dum-dum. Right. It reminds me of a, a, a Gaffigan bit where he talks about standing in line for the Dumbo ride. Right. At, <laughs> in, in Disneyland. And he imagines that, you know, that he imagines this line is kicking forever and says, he imagines at the end of the line is just a, it's just a mirror where you see yourself and this guy that just says, Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it's got to be. Well, that, uh, that wraps up this episode. What? Are we, are we up against it? Yeah, we are. I don't, I don't feel like we've gotten very far into the book, Jeff. Help me out. Well, I mean, we're, ta- we're taking our time. I th- okay. It's just that it's so rich, as we talked about. Yeah. And I'm coming back to the, the Indian now after a number of years away from it. I just recognized that, man, it is so packed with stuff mm-hmm. that I would rather err on the side of taking our time. I would, too. And doing it, and doing it well. Right. right. But we do have to get out of here. We got to get out of here. Right. So as always, we have some people to thank. Mm-hmm. But before we thank them, we want to say something about the Moss Method? I'd like to talk about both my Greek and Latin offerings. Let's if that's okay with you, Jeff? Yep. Okay. So for Greek, uh, this program is called the Moss Method. And it takes you from neophyte to... Erudite. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> what it is is a Greek program. I'm pretty sure it's unlike anything else on offer on the internet. And this is why. It is an, an enormous, a tremendous value. In Module 1, you get... 40 video lessons where I analyze these 40 amazing stories written by Charles Melville Moss. Interesting stuff, some of which deals with the themes we're talking about today. And I teach you the alphabet, syllabification, pronunciation, how to put endings on verbs, nouns, adjectives, pronouns, the whole nine yards. It's all there. 
and uh, you take the the tests, the quizzes, you do the assignments. There's really more than I can describe in a short amount of time. Yeah. But I know what you really like is... I like the Moffis Hours. The Moffis... What's a Moffis Hour? That's where the the people who have signed up for the course, they can actually meet with you. Right. right? right? Yes, once per week. On Fridays, as it turns out, we get together and we read some Greek together, whether it's the New Testament or Homer or Plato, whatever you like. And uh, that comes with the program. So not only can you have a self-paced, expert, and accessible approach to the language... But you get to consult my expertise. That's fantastic. And, and uh, you get to meet people from across the country and oh, around the yeah, world, That's right? correct. Yeah. We're also studying Greek with you at the same time. Fantastic. So I'm a, I'm a serious student of the language. I, I like to think of myself as uh, someone who's you know a little farther ahead in learning than the beginner. I think that's a modest thing to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can be your psuchopomp boss, your soul guide Fantastic. into the world of Greek. So mossmethod.com. That's correct. They can check out a bunch of free stuff that's there. A bunch of free stuff. And uh, consider signing up for this wonderful course. That's correct. Uh, and as well... You got a Latin course. Yeah. So this is the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the course built by Hans Orberg, the great book sold by our sponsor, Hackett. And uh, this program as well takes you ab initio, from the ground up. If yeah. you've never studied any Latin before, this is a painless joyful way to get into the study of Latin. Fantastic. This is $199. We're up to 30 instructional videos now where I am interacting with a live audience of students. You can uh, learn to love these other students. They're charming people. And uh, you can be, you know, sitting in on a classroom and learning all of the material without all the pressure of being in the classroom and according to your own schedule. Fantastic. So if uh, someone is interested, what should they do? They should go to latinperdm.com slash... L-L-P-S-I, L-L-P-S-I, and uh, take a look and see if it's for you. They also get weekly office hours with me to ask anything you want to about the Latin language. Fantastic. All right. Well, Jeff, we need to thank some of the wonderful people who help us out in the production of these little shows. Yes. First and foremost, Miss Mishka. Miss Mishka, yes. She is the one who puts it all together, uh, makes us sound better than we actually are. She's the uh, She is the filter for our Instagram um, photos, yeah, as it were. Right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, right. She's kind of like the Sybil, right? She is kind of like the Sybil. Yeah, she takes the golden bow and she says, I'm going to fix that. Yes, right? exactly. So, um, as always, great thanks to Mishka. And then also to uh, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the, the blistering music that you hear throughout the podcast. Right, yeah. Uh, I like that rock and roll. I do too. Mm-hmm. I like that rock and roll too. Yes. And what are we doing next week, Jeff? Well, next week is the hundredth episode, Dave. Wow. So, are, are we gonna are we doing the the greatest hits? Gonna... We're gonna try. Okay. Still unsure whether we're gonna have uh, it all together in time. Okay. But we have people working uh, all over the globe. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Tirelessly. Tirelessly. Yeah. Toiling in underground caverns with right. the help of the Cyclopes, forging the lightning bolts and the invisible helm of Pluto and so forth. Right. Trying to find the best of. I don't envy them. <laughs> to put together this cheesy clip show. <laughs> Imagine a yeah. hundred episodes of rant and raving oh and man it's nonsense a, it's crazy yeah, I, yeah we've, we've come this far and i'm like i said at the beginning i'm looking forward to the next one honey. i am too yeah i am too so uh dave i believe you have our gustatory parting shot i do and this comes from an author that uh, a lot of people are very fond of uh one clive staples lewis ah yes right and uh, this is from uh the first book i know it's not the first in the reprints but it's the first yes, yes. I, I gotcha the lion the witch and the wardrobe mm-hmm. right yep and uh, this is in the voice, you got to hear this in the voice of the uh, incredibly disturbing Tilda Swinton. Oh my gosh, that portrayal is Yes, is isn't that else. good? Yes, yeah. She plays the Ice Queen, right? So the, good. The White Witch. Yep. And this is what she says. It is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. Yes. Now, do you remember, Jeff, yeah. when we were in Greece uh-huh. with Christiana Dimitra, yes. right? Our wonderful guide, our Sybil in Greece. Yes. Do you remember what she said about this? I don't remember. I mean, well, I, like, I, I vaguely kind of know where you're going, but okay. remind me. Sure. So, like many of the things we encountered in Greek culture, they are Turkish. You remember Turkish coffee? Oh, yes. And I said, oh, Christiana, is this Turkish coffee? No, 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 no. It's no. Greek coffee. <laughs> This is Greek coffee. I said, but it's just like... No, No. it's not. It's Greek coffee. Very proud. And then I said, do you have any Turkish delight? No, no, no. We have Greek delight. (laughs) That's right. Remember, it's a box of of like a gelatinous cubes. It's, it's awful in my opinion. You don't like it? No, I, I, don't, I, I like it. That's another reason I didn't like Edmund. Like, really? That's your that's your, <laughs> that's your your jam? I could only eat one, but it's it's a, a gelatinous albuminous cube. Right. Uh, dusted with uh, confectioner's sugar. Exactly. And I think it swells up to 10 times the natural size once you ingest it. <laughs> exactly, right. No, no, no. That's Greek delight. Jesus. The Greek delight. Right. <laughs> so, Thanks for okay. listening. Thank you.